My name's Jared, and some of us are meeting today for the first time. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and along with Anne, we get to serve as uh, lead pastors. And once in a while, I uh, get to talk as well, and that's my day-to-day, and so I'm all excited about that. A few things that I've been working on that uh, are going to be fun to talk about. Well, actually, I I so much love when uh, Brad uh, greets us, and he always confesses how bad he's been, hasn't he? Isn't that that great? I just love it. It's just good. the Protestant confessional right here. There's this screen right here, and you're all the priests and the priestesses, I guess. I don't know how that works, but it, uh, I, I feel a little better when Brand's that uh, candid. And uh, today, uh, Evergreen, I love you, and uh, I feel comfortable with you and learn to be open with you, and that's a very good thing for me today because I'm just going to continue the confessions today. I, I, I need to tell you about uh, some of my struggle. Uh, a few years ago, as we talk about groups today and we continue our series, uh, the 4G Network, God Gather, Group, and Give, uh, a few years ago, Ann and I, we were about 30, we were uh, leading a pastor in a church in Eugene, about the size of Evergreen. There were about 75 committed leaders. Most of them were leading small groups in homes or they were hosting a group. And we thought doing some leadership training would be a cool thing. And so we invited a famous guy to come and they're all excited because famous guys come in, he's coming down from from Seattle, and he started a church that grew to several thousand. He even wrote a book, and by definition, he knows everything about everything, right? I mean, he's a celebrity, a charismatic, marvelous, engaging speaker. We get our leaders together. They're on the seat, edge of their seats. They've got notebooks and pens, and they're ready to be inspired and trained. And he forgot who he was talking to, and he chased a rabbit trail. And he said, by the way, he said, are any of you like me? He said, I'd rather be drugged naked behind a car than sit in someone's living room in a small group in their couch, looking across the room in their eyes, hearing their story. That's what he said. And then he came back and he did the rest of his leadership training. He was so embarrassed. He talked to Ann and me afterwards. He was nearly in tears. He was just, I forgot I was talking to group leaders and man, it just, it was, we let him feel bad for a long, long time about that. But I actually said at the end, I said, you know, it could be that some of our group leaders needed to hear that more than anything else you had to say, <laughs> because some of you need to hear from us groupophobes. Hmm? Yeah. You need to hear what life is like on the other side of this. And before uh, we launch in today to opening up God's word in Romans chapter 12, we're going to start in a few minutes from verse 3 and take a look at what it says about relationships there. I'd like to identify some reasons that it might be tough for us to group up with other people. Maybe some of you will see yourself in this picture as well. Ready for the first one? This is where you respond with something other than a death look. Are you ready for this one? Yes. All right. It is important for you to interact with me today. Otherwise, I'll keep doing that. I just really need to have some energy here today. So are you ready for the first one? Yeah. Okay. There you go. All right. Now, for the two-thirds of you that did nothing, you're on next time. I do that. Okay. Here we go. The first reason it may be tough to be a part of group is you might have to speak in front of people. And surveys consistently show 
that our greatest fear is speaking in front of people. In fact, surveys say that it's even greater than our fear of death. Now, I assume that that's surveyed people that aren't at the point of death. I don't know maybe if that switches around a little bit later on the deathbed, but we do not want to speak to people. I don't want to speak in groups of people. That can be embarrassing. I'll be judged. I'm putting myself out there. I get that. What if I'm staring across someone's living room? They're looking deep in their eyes and they're saying, Pete, tell me your story, buddy. Tell me your story. Yeah. How about the second one? Reasons it's tough to be a part of a group is it's inconvenient. I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of spare time in my life. Listen, if you've got extra time in this week coming up, would you check with me out in the lobby and give me that time? I'll be very happy. And I'm, I'm guessing that no one's going to take me up on that offer. This was very fun. Uh, last week, I ran into a, a casual friend. I don't know him well. I know his name. And we chatted, and I noticed that he was dr- dressed in motorcycle gear, armor. And I said, Jim, he's a couple years older than me. I said, Jim, I said, I didn't know you ride. What do you ride? And he kind of embarrassed. He said, I got a, I got a fast street bike. And, and he was embarrassed about that. And he said, I used to have a Harley. Like there's a problem having a Harley and then getting a street bike. I used to have a Harley, he said, but all of my buddies that I rode with retired and they got too busy to ride. <laughs> yeah. I tried that out on the eight o'clock service this morning because a bunch of the folks there are retired. They all agreed that they've never been busier in their life. I don't know about you. I don't have a lot of extra mornings or evenings or lunch hours to plug into my schedule. But doing the right thing is always a matter of priority, isn't it? So if I come to a conviction that hanging out and grouping up is priority and that I might actually have my spiritual life accelerated, hmm, I'll think about it. How about the third one? You may feel awkward. It goes like this. You don't understand. I'm just not a very social or outgoing person. And I, frankly, sometimes don't even like people that much. <laughs> and they often have a ton of issues. And if I do get near them, they tell me those. And then I feel some responsibility for them. Yeah. Why don't they just work through their drama on their own already? But wait. God created us as social beings. He's caused us to only make sense of life connected to other. And when I connect with others in relationship, maybe even in a group, I'm liable to contribute more and grow better. Yeah. Well, how about number four? Small groups make me feel vulnerable. I'm talking for myself here, first person. I don't like feeling vulnerable. Some people say, well, being vulnerable is weak, or some people say, you know, it's just, it's, it's not necessary. I don't know about that. I just know I don't like how it feels. I like feeling in control much better than feeling out of control, and that's what vulnerability is. When I spill my guts to you, I'm no longer in control of my story. You are. I don't like how that feels. What if you trample on my story? What if you gossip about me? What if you misuse it? What if you throw it back at me sometimes? I don't like feeling out of control. And once my story has slipped out, it will never be recaptured by my control. But then I remember what God says, that being vulnerable isn't being weak. It's being humble. And when I do find myself toward humility and sharing life in others, this is the great promise. God gives grace to the humble. Yeah, maybe it's worth it. 
Well, how about the fifth good reason that I've come up with not to group up? It's groups want me to share my life story. And I don't necessarily want you to know any more of my story than you already think you know about me. In fact, maybe I have crafted a myth about my life. And furthermore, I'm not sure I always want to hear your story because I might feel bad about your life and I may feel responsible for it. Don't vote on this. I'm voting on behalf of some of you by proxy though, but we've been there. I have enough goofed up people in my life. You look a little odd. You might come through with some more of that. My life is full of that. You understand where I'm coming from here. Mm. True confessions of a, of a group of phobe. Here I am. Now, I don't know if you saw yourself in one, two, or all five of those. But I'm going to invite you just to metaphorically put those that you own in your right hand today. Just go ahead and dump them in there. My hand's really full. That's why it's so open here. I can hardly handle all five of those, and it's there. And I want you to hold those, and I want you to acknowledge them, and I want you to own them. I'm not asking you to judge them as wrong. I'm not asking you to try to kill them. I'm not asking you to expect that they'll evaporate or even go away. I'm asking you to own them because that's truth about where many of us live. And that truth are the factors that we use to make decisions. And that truth and those factors are what hinder many of us from experiencing some of the life and vitality that God has available for us. What we're going to do when we turn to God's Word today in Romans chapter 12 is we're going, we're going to take five spotlights of God's truth, big T, little t, and we're going to let those spotlights come on one at a time, and over the course of the next few minutes, I think that little t truth is still going to be in the room, but for some of us, it's going to be cowering over in a corner, and it's going to give up as we say what God has to say about our lives. You want to jump in with me? Oh, thank you. You're getting there. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 3, and this is what it says. I love this passage. For by the grace given to me, says the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others." We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Because love must be sincere. Hate what's evil, cling to what's good. Be devoted to one another in love. Other, honor one another above yourselves. That's, that's what it says. Hmm. Now, this sounds like a nice, wonderful, almost poetic passage, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't it sound sweet and encouraging? I mean, if you don't even unpack it, doesn't it just sound 
Sound kind of cozy? I'm planning to just blow that up today. Here we go. I think that this is tough. I think it's wonderful. I think it's challenging. And I think Paul gives us a swift kick in the shin to kind of catch our attention here as the spotlights come on. And here's the first one that he says. Observation number one, think straight. I learned many years ago, this phrase has helped me a lot in life. Jared, your feelings are not reliable indicators of the truth. (laughs) Your feelings are not reliable indicators of the truth. Paul says to these folks, listen, folks, I want you to think straight. Some of you have been sideways in your thinking. Some of you have had fuzzy thinking about yourself. What does it mean to be sober? To sober is to be clear-headed and strength-thinking and strength-straight-forward. Yeah. He says, I want you to have good thinking about yourself, and I want for your thinking to be in light of what God thinks about you, according to the faith that God gave to you, what God's doing in you. That's the standard of thinking that I want. So Anna outed me yesterday. Some of you are her Facebook friends. I heard about it. She told you that I got my motorcycle endorsement. Yep, she did. Thank you. Both of you that are applauding me, that's very kind and generous. There's four groups in the room. Those of you that think that's cool. There's those of you that think that's crazy. There are those of you that think you should pray for me. And there are those of you that couldn't care less. All four of you. Did I include everybody? Yeah, we're unanimous. So I went to motorcycle school. You know, that's how you get endorsed. And I went to motorcycle class. And the first day, we, the first morning, we were in class. And the second part of the day in the afternoon, we were on the course. And we take the little test. But in class, there's, it's four hours from 8 to noon. And of that, there's lots of breaks. I like that kind of school. So there's only three hours of coursework. Guess what they devoted 20 minutes of three hours to talk about? Don't drink and drive and ride. That was it. And they talked a bunch about, you know, the very first drink you take, the very first toke you take, the very first snort you take. Immediately, you begin to lose stuff. And far before you get to point oh 0.08, is that what it is, Pete, reserve officer? Far before you get to point oh 0.08, you immediately begin to lose stuff. And it's called this, your judgment is impaired. That's what they said. Hmm. The Apostle Paul says to folks, you're a nice church at Rome, heard a lot of good things about you. Some of you are drunk on your own press releases. You've got some impaired thinking going on here, and I want you to think straight, he says. Some of you think a little too highly of yourself. You read your own press release, you're kind of high on, high on you. And this is how it works. You know, this linking up with other people, it makes sense for others. You know, I think Ron is at his best when he's grouped up with others. But, you know, I I think I'm exceptional. I'm wired a little differently. I don't really need group and relationships as much as Ron does. Paul just gives them a quick, swift kick in their shin and says, listen, you're thinking a little more highly of yourself than you ought. Now, isn't it true that there's the flip side of that coin? 
There are some of us who may think too lowly of ourselves. Other people are smart. They've had experiences. They express themselves well. They seem to do better in a group. I'm kind of dumb and slow and haven't been around and look stupid and feel awkward. No one's going to notice if I'm not there, I say to myself. Paul would give us a swift kick in the shin and said, listen, you're not thinking straight about yourselves. Straight thinking is God's thinking about you, which leads us to the second observation, which is know your part. Here it is. You have stuff others need. You really do. This is what we read. Each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. Hello? Others, other people need stuff that you have. So, since I get to talk to Gay, I get to do this. I'm going to ask you to go to a, very, to a very disturbing place with me, a dark place. Ready? Here we go. You're coming on the scene of an accident. In fact, maybe you were there, maybe you saw it, and maybe you heard it, and maybe you smelled it, and you're standing in the middle of the aftermath. It is horrible. It is revolting. It is horrific. A body has been thrown out of the car. It has become dismembered. There is a leg. There is an arm. There is a foot. There is a broken torso. It is revolting. You want to turn away from it. Hmm. (sighs) Because God has designed us to react against a body that was supposed to be beautifully put together when we see it broken into parts. That's what he's saying in this verse. He wants you to viscerally get into this metaphor. And we all understand what this feels like. God made us with these wonderful bodies and they have different parts and this hand is a great hand and I think it likes being a hand. It doesn't talk to me much, but it does a lot of good things. But if this hand was over there 20 yards away, it would not function well. It would not last long and it would certainly not do anything for the rest of the body. Listen, that hand has stuff the rest of this body needs. And Paul says to us, listen, I want you to know your part because you have stuff that others need. The third, and I want you to imagine the spotlight now just clanging on and bringing truth with a big T to us. He says to us, and I want you to do your part. Think straight, know your part, and do your part. Because, and this is a shocking phrase, you have stuff others deserve. Shocking, because I am an American man, old enough to have grown up on John Wayne, wanted to smoke because I could be the Marlboro man. And I do watch some uh, martial arts fighting in the cage from time to time. I sneak it just at home in the privacy of my living room, but I know what real men still look like, I want you to know. And I'm an American man. I like to think that I'm pretty much self-made. And if I want to be generous with you, then that's nice of me. So if I have something that helps Shane and I give it to Shane, good for me for being so generous. But do you notice the point of view in the independence? It's our cultural independence. Now, if you really press me, I would probably agree, well, back there a long time ago, you know, I married Anne, and so we're committed to this thing. So maybe she deserves some stuff from me, maybe. 
And then if my kids are there, I go, well, yeah, they didn't ask to be brought into this world. Ann and I did the stuff for that. So I guess, you know, that's some responsibility that I have to. Maybe I owe them something. But frankly, no, not very many people deserve much from me. If I want to give generously, good for me and good for them, but they don't deserve much. Do you notice the 180-degree value of the kingdom that strikingly says, I want you to notice the second line, each member belongs, would you read the next four words with me, to all the others. Wow. So, I belong to you. Isn't that nice to know? You belong to me. Wow. There's some responsibility that's coming now into my contribution. I am no longer getting to use the handful of small T truth factors in making my decision about how I relate to other people in God's family. All of a sudden, I'm adding these factors of I have something you need and you have something I deserve, which leads us to the next observation, which is good news. You get to act like yourself. Yeah. You are absolutely at your best when you are being yourself. This is great news. I don't know. Let me just ask. Are any of you professional actors and you actually get paid money for doing that? Any of you professional actors here? Love to identify. I don't, don't see anybody. There was somebody, Isaac Frank, in the last service, sat right front and center. Isaac Frank actually gets, he leads, helps lead worship. Somebody. He actually gets paid money for acting. Is that amazing or what? What should we learn about our acting skills, therefore? We aren't all that good. That's it. Guess what? Not only do people not pay us to act, almost no one but us ever gets fooled when we're trying to act. And certainly this is true. We are never better than when we are ourselves and not acting. Yeah. So here's the good news. The good news, the spotlight in Christ. Here's the truth, big tree, big T. God has made you a gifted person. And when you act like who he's made you, you are at your best and we are getting the most. He mentions seven specific gifts here. It's not a comprehensive list. There are many others that are mentioned in the Bible as well, but he's kind of giving us a little taste or a flavor. Imagine that you are a part of a group of eight people. You meet a couple of times a month. Imagine that people that came into your group had this kind of gift mix. The first one are people who have the gift of prophecy. I don't know what kind of a context you have for that, and there can be some real weirdness about that. Some of you are familiar with, with a form of prophecy where people stand in a public setting, sometimes interrupting other things, and uh, sometimes they'll actually say, this is what God is saying. Sometimes they actually change their voice or vocabulary to do that. That's one kind of experience that many of us have had. I don't speak that to disparage that at all. Sometimes some very helpful things happen there, but I'm wanting to give the bigger context for prophecy. This is what we discover in the Bible. Paul writes to the Church of Corinth, and he says, when people prophesy, the result for the rest of us is we are encouraged and our lives are put back together. We are built up. Here's what John tells us about prophecy in the Revelation. He said, prophecy is the spirit of Jesus. 
So this is what it looks like when you bump into someone who is gifted with prophecy. You end up listening to them and hanging out with them, and the result is you're hearing from them about what Jesus is doing. Your thoughts are being drawn into and focused on him. You're hearing about what he, he might be doing, and you leave put together and feeling encouraged for you. Any of you up for that kind of experience? Yeah, I want folks like that in my life. And there are. And they're all around this auditorium right now. And you'll bump into them in the lobby. And as I use that functional descriptor, you are able to identify people in your life that are like that. How awesome. There's a second kind of person here. It's, it's the, the next gift uh, on the list is uh, teaching, right? Or serving. Oh, I love this. Pam Kaiser, I don't know if she's in the service or not. If she is, she doesn't want to be identified. So Pam, don't identify yourself. Pam Kaiser is amazing. She serves you every week. You don't even know it. She has every week for months, for years. It's into the decades. Serves this church every week. She comes in early in the week and gets a long, long shopping list. And there's stuff for adult ministries and worship team stuff and kids stuff and students stuff. And she goes to different stores around town and she buys boxes full of stuff and she brings them back and she distributes them all around the building. And sometimes I run into Pam and I'm embarrassed for how hard she works day, week in and week out for us, month after month, year after year. And I say to Pam, Pam, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. This is a big deal. And she laughs at me. Kind of an odd response, don't you think, to somebody who's really pouring out himself, trying to express gratitude, and she laughs at me. She laughs at me, and she waves me silent, and this is what Pam says. She says, Pam says, you don't understand, Jared. I love to shop, and every week I get to shop. I get to go to stores all around. I love to shop, and she said, furthermore, I'm kind of cheap. I love to shop with other people's money. She said, how could this be better for me? And you know what? She's being funny, but she's also being truthful. She's saying to me, I wouldn't do this for this long that faithfully and not love it. She is a gifted servant. You show up at your group, and all of a sudden, it's just like a miracle happened. The place, you know, has actually been kind of tidied up, and it looks fairly safe, and the dogs have all been put out in the backyard, and the chairs are arranged in kind of an order that makes sense for the number of people that are going to be there, and there's some goodies that come out, and it actually looks like people, you know, how did this just work? Somebody behind the scenes gave service to it. For a long, long time, Pete gave leadership to the crew of guys that did the cooking for uh, the men's breakfast that, that happens, especially in the winter and monthly. It'll be coming up really soon, uh, later in October in a couple of weeks, guys. We want you to be a part of that thing, just behind the scenes, serving to make things happen. What's the next one that shows up? It's teaching. You rub shoulders with these people. She has some insight out of God's word. You always like to listen when she talks. It doesn't take any longer than anybody else, but she always has this beautiful thing that happens, something that God showed her in Scripture how she lived that in her life and how it might make sense for us as well. And we leave bumping into these people and we say, I always learn so much about how to take next steps with Jesus whenever I'm around her. And then I bump into somebody that's over here on my left-hand side and this person encourages and it's not because of what he says as much, it's just who he is. Dennis Mentor, you're right here, calling you out, buddy. Fourth row back, front and center. You and Lynn are looking pretty cozy. It's okay, you're in church, it's okay to be, yeah. Little PDF going, PDF. PDA going on over here. <laughs> Too many documents in my life, not enough people. I'm, I'm, a, gr I'm a groupophobe. That's right. 
So Dennis takes me uh, quadding uh, a few weeks ago. I love going quadding with Dennis for lots of reasons, including because you're a nice guy, but including me, he buys the quad, he maintains the quad, he hauls the quad, he starts the quad, I ride the quad, I get the quad dirty, he takes it home and I don't even clean it. It's a beautiful relationship Dennis and I have. <laughs> love this guy. But I got to tell you, quadding or not, if after the service, you and Dennis walked out to the field and talked about the color of green of the grass, you would leave encouraged because Dennis has a spiritual gift of encouragement. You just hang out with him for a couple of minutes and you leave having more energy, more life, more vitality, feeling a little bit more positive and optimistic about your life and God and tomorrow and the next step because of a gift of encouragement. When Dennis is at himself, he's at his best. There's giving. And if you're gifted with giving, give generously. Oh, I love this thing. It's so fun. So you know that we're involved in this opportunity this fall of raising and giving together, committing together $100,000 for our Love More initiative to be better neighbors to our 32,000 Latino and Hispanic neighbors in the area. And you know that two weeks from today and the following week, we'll actually be asking you for your commitment over the next year, actually receiving an offering for those of you that would like to front load that commitment. You know we've been talking. You know we've been praying. You know we haven't been asking for money. And some of you have been doing what I've been doing. Uh, can we uh, make sure that we, you know, get some bottles and cans and we'll give some to Cornerstone and we'll give some to this. Are there some things in the closet or in the garage that we can put on Craigslist and sell? You know, is there any little part-time work thing that I could do to earn a little bit of money? Any place in our budget that we can squeeze out a few dollars? That's what most of us do, right? That's how we approach giving sacrificially. We look for these little things that we can do. It's entirely appropriate. That's where most of us live. And then there's people that are gifted with generosity. They've been here a few months in the church. If they stood on the platform today, less than 5% of you would know who they were. You, you would not even recognize them. They're here, but, but you do not know them. They're just regular working folks like us. They didn't wait for a commitment. They didn't talk about it. Two weeks ago, they just dropped a $5,000 check in the offering. Just marked love more. Now, see, that's a gift of giving. That's generosity. Because people with this gift think different about stuff than the rest of us do. We think that we have a glass of water. It's on the kitchen counter. And Rick is going to come over to my house. And I'm afraid that that's going to be all the water I have for the next three days. So Rick looks a little thirsty. And I ask Rick if he'd like some water. And he, you know, unwisely says yes. And so I have to take out like this teaspoon thing to give Rick a little bit of the water off the thing because I know how little I have. And I give him some water. Because that's how most of us give. We just approach it from that point of view. This is how givers give. They don't even look at the glass of water. They look at the faucet. For They're all about the faucet. Rick, are you thirsty? Awesome. Let me give you 64 ounces. And then they let the water continue to run, and then they get another one. If one is good, six are better. I'm giving them a six-pack of 64 ounces of water. You notice the difference in the metaphor. For them, it's all about, we have an opportunity to give. Let's go crazy doing that because their experience is never one of lack. They give generously. And so he says to these folks, if you're gifted to give, then crank it up and give like crazy. Give generously. That's why on the stuff we distributed, it said, do you want to give a one-time gift of $10,000? Some of you were blown. I watched the hair on your head be blown straight back when you saw that. <laughs> Who would anybody be dumb enough and audacious enough to ask people in this church, do you want to give a one-time gift of 10000 
Why did we have some courage to do that? Because somebody who's not in, even in the church said, someday you're going to do a thing for Latino ministries and I'd like to give $10,000 toward it. Somebody had already done that before we ever printed the thing. You get the point. I'm talking. I'm talking too long. Here we go. Lead diligently. Someone puts this together. I don't want to go to a small group in someone's home. I don't know what it's going to be like. I'm going to get there. People do weird stuff in small groups. Don't you know that? I've got a story for you. He went off and ranted, and it was stupid and weird. And What do leaders do? They create a safe environment for good stuff to happen. They actually are diligent in leadership. They've developed some skills around that gift. They're able to come and somebody kind of goes off on a rabbit trail. Leaders are amazing. They're able to help that person come right back on. It's done in a respectful and an honorable way. No one feels awkward about it. Somebody kind of wants to get stuck on a point and the leader kind of helps facilitate and move on. And at the end of the time, we've covered all the bases that we wanted to cover. We all feel good and respected and contribute about it. How did that happen? Somebody who's a leader was leading with diligence How about mercy? Some days I don't want to know your favorite Bible verse, and I don't want to know the thing that you just learned, and I don't want Dennis pumping sunshine my way. What I want to do is I want to sit down, and I want you to cry with me. And I want you to tell me that it's as sucky as I think it feels. And I want you to do it cheerfully. I don't need Eeyore there. We both go do bad things to ourselves together. But that's why it says, if you have the gift of mercy, do it cheerfully. But sometimes I don't want your fix, and I don't want your wisdom, and I don't want your insight. I want you. I got to tell you, if I was in the hospital, some of you might come, and that would be nice of you. But if I had to choose one person in the world outside of my family to come, I'll tell you who it would be. Linda Bothman. That's who it would be. I want Linda to come visit me. If I'm having a lousy week, and I show up at group, and there's seven other people at the room, I want Linda to be there with a gift of mercy. That's who I want next to me. I want her to take my hand, and I want her to listen to my story, and I want her to cry with me, and I want her to have mercy on me. That's what I need that day. Hmm? So, would you sign up for that group? Hmm? I think maybe I could reach into my already too busy schedule and maybe take the chance that if I grouped up with some folks, that in God's design... There might be a prophet and there might be a server and there might be a teacher and there might be a leader and there might be an encourager and there might be a giver and there might be somebody that's merciful to me. I think maybe I could do life with people like that, I think. Do you understand why the church hurts people so often? Now, you notice that I stated that as a fact, didn't you? Sure. All of us, if we've been around church, we've got stories, right? You know one of the reasons church hurts people so often? is that we misinterpret this for the institution of a church. That's how it works. We've never done what government does. Well, anyway, government taxes and then it redistributes wealth, right? Churches that tax people and try to redistribute wealth, we only set ourselves up for failure. The institution of the church never, ever will fulfill God's spiritual gifts through people. So I have a financial need and I come to the institution of the church and I say, I heard you had a benevolence fund, can you help me? And then we're embarrassed and you're embarrassed about the little amount that we're able to help with because the institution of the church is not well suited to doing that. But man, if I'm in a group and this group's been praying for me for three months and I lost my job and the thing's going south and we're at this crisis and all of a sudden, I didn't know it, just everyday working people like the rest of us, somebody in the group says, after the group, private way. 
you know, we've been praying about this, and we're able to help you out. We'd like to help you out. Isn't that cool? That's the church, okay? And the church doesn't disappoint you. Oh, don't ask the institution to, to fulfill needs that only God can fulfill through people. The institution is very helpful. It gets us together. It organizes things. It coordinates things. It does allocate resources in certain ways. But I think I might even show up for a group like that, which leads us to the last spotlight. And here it is. So we get to be committed. Notice what it says in verse 10. So be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Yeah. So if I'm going to be committed, I'm going to look to three places. I'm going to look in my calendar. My calendar's already overcommitted, which means I have to kill something in the calendar, and then I have to pull it out by its roots, screaming and kicking, because that's how things come out of our calendar, to create the time. That's commitment. Mm -hmm. And then I have to go into my bank account. Preacher, you're messing. You're always going to talk about this. I know. Here I am, going where no one is bold enough to go. Here we go. Of course you have to go into your bank account. Commitment is about who we are. It's time, it's money, and it's about greatest of all preferences. Love each other and in honor prefer who? Each other. Which means I take my list of preferences. I have a page and a line down the middle. Things I want. Things I don't like. And in these two columns, I fill it. And then it becomes 60 pages long, right? My preference list. And somehow when I group up, I have to drop a lot of those preferences off. Of course, there's not going to be a group that's perfect for me. And if it was, I would mess it up when I showed up, right? A commitment says, I don't have the time, I'll make the time. I don't have the money, I'll make the money. I have my preferences, but I've decided that I'm going to give into your preferences over some of mine. Do you think Paul was writing this for tough people? Absolutely. No wimps need apply to this thing. This is good stuff. So what does that mean for us? Well, did you get a puzzle piece on your way in? The right answer is yes. And if you go ahead and dig for it down in the bottom of your purse or in your pocket or wherever that hand, if you didn't get a puzzle piece on the way in, I don't know what happened. You must have come through the ceiling because the ushers were committed to being highly persistent in making sure that each of you got a puzzle piece today. Have it in hand there? Good. Let me ask you a question. Any of you have a corner piece? Corner piece? How many corner pieces? Any? Any corner pieces? Am I missing you? Yeah? Over here. Leonard, corner piece. Awesome. Do you have any idea if it's top or bottom or left or right? No, no clue. Any of you have side pieces, line pieces? I love those. I help our family with puzzles. I do the corner pieces, and then I encourage them to do the lion's nest, and I, Lex, and I leave. Any lines out there? Yeah. Have any idea? Have any idea if it's top, bottom, left, or right side? Yeah. How many of you, like me, have a piece that's supposed to get connected on all four sides, and you're taking a look at it? What do you think it is? Any of you have an idea of what it is? What's that, what's that a part of, the bigger piece? What do you think? You don't know? Any of you have any clues? An owl? I'll make it up. Giraffe. Where did I hear giraffe? I'm with you, man. I've heard that every service so far, and I have a giraffe piece as well. I want you to know, you and me, I bet they go right together. What do you think? Yeah, there you go. Want to take a look at what your puzzle piece is a part of? Here it is. I think the giraffe might be the basketball. I think, I think so. Yeah, that's what it is. I love the message translation of this passage. It says in part, unless 
If you want your life to make sense and have meaning, you will only find that in the context of others. Yeah. Now I know who I am. Now I know how I can fit. And now my life can make sense. Those questions that have plagued men and women since the beginning of the time, who am I, what does it mean, and where do I fit, are ultimately only answered in the context of community. Yeah. And what happens when you decide that you're either exceptional because you don't need it or we don't need you. Where did your eyes go when that slide came up? (laughs) Right to the middle, of course, right? To the missing piece. That's how we're wired. We are wired to find what's not there. I know you're tired. You come home, the kids were crazy. We got the group thing, but man, I just, I don't want to hear anybody's story. I don't want to hear any of the words. I don't have anything else to say tonight. I don't think they'll miss me that much if I'm not there tonight. Have any of you been there? That's where I am. Guess what? They will miss you because that's how life has been designed. And for those of you that have been a lifelong groupophobe, as I have, Grouping up is the only way that we make our best contribution. Hmm. So where does your puzzle piece fit here at Evergreen? Well, there's some opportunities coming up, some groups that you've been hearing about, life groups and soap groups and affinity groups and dinner for six. And and you can see more about those in the lobby today. And I have an encouragement for you. If you're a little underconnected, I don't know if you're like me, but when I help with a jigsaw puzzle, and I take a piece, every time I pick up a piece, I immediately put it in the perfect place, right? Is that your experience? Every time, right? Never, ever. I put it here and there, and I turn around, I twist it, I set it down, and then I try again, right? Trial and error. Guess how you're going to find your perfect place to fit? Probably some trial and error. Here's a little hint, just you and me, okay? Here we go. I encourage you to consider this a menu and for you to select an entree off of all four of those in the next two months. Sign up for dinner for six. Go ahead and fill out your slip. Put it in the offering basket on the way out. You'll get a call in a month or two. If that time didn't work out, you know, you're just doing an RSVP. You'll get invited to another one. That's fine. Try a life group. Try a soap group. Try an affinity group. Try a dinner for six and see if when you move your puzzle piece around, you find your best fit. And guess what? You will have also discovered a bunch of new friends in the process. Mm. So this is what that looks like for me. This week, I was a part of a few groups. On Monday, we had dinner for five at our condo. Tuesday morning at six, I visited the IHOP men's group that I helped start two years ago. I then went to my regular weekly group at 6.15, and then I came here to the building. It was a part of the weekly team staff meeting, and that night evening, I hung out with a bunch of church planting couples for two hours that meet monthly. And Wednesday morning at 6, I said hi at the men's Bible study at Starbucks. And Thursday, I called into my regular weekly group conference call. And, well, you get the point. I am committed to this group deal. And I've been committed for life to this group deal. Grew up in a home where my parents invited our neighbors to come over for a Friday evening Bible study. That was just what we did on the farm. And I didn't always like it because I got stuck babysitting all the 
dastardly little neighbor kids. But I, I learned that the Roth family just did group. And when I went to college on Sunday nights from 9 to 10, I invited the other Christian guys in my dorm to come over for an hour. And the first week there was one other Christian. And the next week I ran, ran into a guy, asked him if he's a Christian, and he said, I'm kind of. And I said, great, you're a half. And that week we had three guys and two and a half Christians in my room. And by the end of that nine-month uh, year, we had 17 guys that were coming to that group. And during that time, I was leading a study for a group of high school kids because I'm a groupophobe, but I am committed to group. We got married, new, newly married. We invited people to come to our apartment for a Bible study on Wednesday nights. It outgrew the apartment. We moved into Anne's aunt's great room. And, and Anne and I have grouped up in every season. It's a way of life. And I'm still here in honesty to tell you today that I don't particularly like groups. Hmm. And when the alarm goes off at five that makes my presence at some of those possible, I do not like the alarm. And almost every morning I come up with wonderful, good reasons why I could do something else that would be very meaningful and helpful and urgent if I didn't go to group. Trust me, folks, my hand is still full of the five things that make it tough to do group. But thank God, somewhere along the line, T, big T truth came along, and I've discovered that when I live my life based upon how God views me and how he says life was designed to be lived, that big truth trumps little truth. I may die my gasping breath wishing I wasn't in a group, but I will die a much better person for having lived my life in groups. And I invite you to do the same. Because doing life with a few friends means these things. You belong. There's a safe place where you're trusted and you're with trustworthy people. Where you can be open and truly be yourself. And where you can contribute in ways that let God's meaning and purpose in your life flow through. I don't know, I don't know any other way to live life than grouping up. And my invitation for you today as we pray and this week as we leave here to act and apply is for you to consider your group life to date. Maybe your life is full of wonderful groups and you're saying, Jared, this was a wonderful confirming, affirming word. Woohoo! We cheer you on. That's awesome. Maybe you're a guest with us today and you're going to go home and you're going to group up in some ways uh, with friends there that you haven't. Maybe you're relatively new to Evergreen and this is how you're going to connect with other people. Maybe you've been at Evergreen for a long time, but it's time for you to freshen up some of your relational circles. I don't know what your story is, but I know this. I'm liable to bump into you at group. Let's do it together, shall we? Let's pray.